This episode of Talking Technology with Atlas is brought to you by Veracross and Toddle. Atlas thanks our vendors for their support. This episode is brought to you by Toddle. Toddle is a teacher-built, AI-powered platform that's more than a learning management system. The founders of Toddle are former teachers who realized their workflow was broken as they struggled between systems that didn't talk to each other. So they created Toddle, a teaching and learning platform for K-12 progressive schools. Toddle goes beyond a typical LMS, streamlining all aspects of teaching, from curriculum planning and mapping, to assessments and gradebook, to progress reports and family communication. This includes standards and competency-based learning, student portfolios, project-based learning, and much more. So if you're looking for a new platform or want to stay ahead of the curve and want the best tools for your teachers, check out Toddle. We've linked to their website in the show notes. Their team is very responsive, and if they ask... Tell them Atlas sent you. Veracross is the one-person, one-record school management platform that has been solving the unique challenges of K-12 private and independent schools for the last 20 years. From admissions and enrollment, to billing and accounting, to academics and development, data updates instantly across all departments to increase efficiencies, remove silos, and foster school-wide collaboration. With Veracross, you can trust that every constituent is accessing current, correct, and complete information. When all departments, teachers, students, and families are using the same source of information, you create a more unified, connected school community. With Veracross, go from school data chaos to it just works. Visit www.veracross.com to learn more. Welcome to Talking Technology with Atlas, the show that plugs you into the important topics and trends for technology leaders, all through a unique independent school lens. We'll hear stories from technology directors and other special guests from the independent school community and provide you with focused learning and deep dive topics. And now, please welcome your host, Christina Llewellyn. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Talking Technology with Atlas. I'm Christina Llewellyn, Executive Director of the Association of Technology Leaders in Independent Schools. And I'm Hiram Cuevas, Director of Information Systems and Academic Technology at St. Christopher's School in Richmond, Virginia. And I am Bill Stites, Director of Technology at Montclair Kimberly Academy in Montclair, New Jersey. Guys, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so glad that we are gathering together once again. I have a question for you guys because I've been thinking about this since the last time we recorded. I always kind of come in with a question, and this one struck me just in the normal course of business. And that is, we talked about this a little bit, I think, but my parents, my children, they have no idea what I do for a living. And it came up again recently, even though they, you know, they listen to the podcast and I've explained to them what I do. There's this infamous story in our world where I asked my stepdad once what I do for a living. And his response was, you have a team. And I said, yeah, but what do I do? And he goes, you tell the team what to do. And honestly, that's not a bad answer. But what is my question for you is what do your friends and family think that you do all day at work? I think they think I turn it off and turn it back on again, which is the basic troubleshooting of any good technologist is learning how to do that. So that's basically what they think I do. Other than that, I have to actually bribe my wife to listen to the podcast so that she can get an idea of what it is that I can do. And the only reason I got her to listen to it recently was because I told her we mentioned her in two of the episodes. 
so that she had to listen to understand what's going on. I mean, let's make it three. What's your wife's name? Brooke Stites. Brooke Stites. Hey, shout out to Brooke Stites. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> you need to listen to the podcast, friend. <laughs> I think she really just thinks all I do is hang out with Hiram and just do that. But other than that, we'll see. I mean, both of those answers are actually pretty accurate. Hiram, what do your friends and family think you do at work all day? They tend to think I have a giant switch in my office as well, kind of like in Jurassic Park when they had to repower up the park. Uh, it's the and you turn it back on and get off again. The other one is, you know, how many times did you say, did you Google it today? They think <laughs> that you're the Sherpa of Google, like just go Google your answers. Is that what they think you do? Did you Google your answer? Did you ask three before me, kind of like what you do with your students. It's like Inspector Gadget. Absolutely. Go, go, Google. Go, go, Google. Awesome. Well, I'm excited today because I really want to learn about our guest today. I'm really excited to learn about what the heck she does at work all day. We have an ed tech slant on today's podcast. So this is exciting because I know that you guys both bring this energy to what we do here all the time. But today we welcome to the podcast Dawn Carrera Berkeley, and she's the Director of Educational Technology at St. Albans School in D.C., Dawn, welcome to the show. Thank you all for having me. I didn't realize it would be this much fun in the first few minutes. <laughs> so this is great. <laughs> oh, we always bring it. So I am excited to learn about what it is that you do all day. But first, I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey and how you found yourself in this role. You know, I know you as a person that a lot of people in the Atlas community really respect. And so it's going to be really cool, especially to learn about the expertise that you bring from an ed tech background. So tell us a little bit about how you got to your current role. I got my career started in public schools. My major in college was um, bio pre-med and my intentions were going to medical school. All right, great. So after I got done and graduated, I started, you know, just thinking and like, I think I need a break. And so some colleagues or I guess former teachers of mine said, Dawn, I think you'd be really great if you came by this school and kind of helped us out. And I was like, what do you mean by helping you out? Can you cover a few classes? And I was like, um, you mean children? <laughs> like, what does this look like? And it was high school again. So I knew that the children were at least 15 and up. And so I said, okay, let me try it. I'll see. Right. But don't get too excited with this because I have plans. I have other things I'm setting to do. Went by the school, sat in a few classes, started substituting. And I said, of course, I'll substitute. It was an AP biology course. And then the next thing you know, I actually started enjoying it. And I think the thing I enjoyed the most I enjoyed working with kids, but also enjoyed seeing these kids. Again, I taught in public school, these kids from backgrounds that were just not as privileged as the ones I'm in now. Having these high goals and seeing how I could help be part of that, those goals, that for me was like transformative and made me feel like, wow, this is this is great. I think I could do this, right? And I needed support because when I first started, I was awful. I didn't know how to manage a classroom. Public schools are so very different from independent schools, as you would imagine, meaning I had 30 kids in my class. One semester, I had 50 children on my roster in an AP biology class. And so I begged the students, I said, I need you to advocate, like tell your parents, like not saying teachers weren't hurt, but I just didn't feel like I was hurt. That being said, that was dissolved. But um, I started that way. I had always adopted and included tech in my classes and things I would be very apt to try things and early adopter, just in my own personal practice. 
one of the principals saw and said, Dawn, you seem pretty good with this. You should do this. And I was like, uh, y'all like throwing things at me and having me do things. So I said, I'll try it. And so in that year, the school district decided to purchase this large fleet of iPads. Everyone gets an iPad. It was just this whole thing. Everyone gets an iPad and Dawn, you're in charge of it. And I was like, okay, what is that supposed to look like? And so I knew I would need help. So I reached out. I worked with Apple's team. They were amazing at supporting me because I didn't want to just say, here's a device, but we really need to think about, like our teachers don't even know how to think about what it means to integrate a device, right? There's one part of like the management piece of it, but in terms of instructional frameworks, like what does that look like? How do we make sense of this? And so I was then placed in a role where I became the iPad coordinator for a school that had 2,300 students. So I had to figure it out. And figuring it out initially was I was the team. So I had to come up with finding people across different disciplines and departments to kind of help me out. I did that for some time. And then from there on out, I started to become a little tired. As I mentioned to you, at large class sizes. That year in particular, before I transitioned out, I taught two classes that were co-taught special ed courses. And I was just really worn out. I was staying up late grading. I just needed maybe a difference. So I was like, I think I'm going to transition. And I think I'm going to transition into ed tech. I really, really like this. I really like that I get to work with so many people. For me, that was the other part, right? When I was teaching bio, I was just kind of in my class and I enjoyed that. But I was like, I like working with faculty and adults also. From there, I started looking around at programs. This is like grad programs. And I signed up for, it was a program through Wilkes University. It was a master's program in instructional media, took the courses and then said, "Mm, maybe I should look for a job in this same role. And so from there, I transitioned from public to independent schools, taking my first role at Sidwell Friends School as the academic tech coordinator for the upper school. And so that's sort of how I arrived here. Three years later, I then saw this position at St. Albans, same role. But this time, to add to my belt, as it were, this role is actually grades four through 12. And going back, I was like, okay, I've never worked with, you know, I had my own children, but it's different when they're your children versus others. So I had to think about, wow, how am I going to build a program? I was the first ed tech coordinator here, first ed tech anything. And I had no team. I still don't have a team. (laughs) I'm kind of making my own team as kind of informally, but just trying to think about how do we, from a vertical approach, how do we build skills? How do we not just get the kids to do these things, but like, how do I even get teachers on board? I know that's like a long story, but that's how I arrived where I am. I started in public, transitioned to independent, and I've been here since. It's really a similar story. You said I had to figure it out. And so many tech leaders started down this path because they were asked to figure something out. And especially since this particular role in this profession didn't necessarily exist a couple of decades ago. So there's been a whole lot of figuring it out in many of our careers. So one of my questions is, how is your tech structured now? Like, so you're, you head up ed tech, but is there somebody else who's handling IT and security issues at your school or how's technology sort of structured at St. Albans? We do have an IT team and they pretty much handle all, you know, the devices, management, deployment, security, privacy. They handle that side of the house. I am the teacher facing side of the house in that I work in classes. I work with teachers. I work with students. I even work with our business office. So I'm kind of like in this center. Um, if you think of like Stokes, I'm kind of working with everyone. I really, really enjoy doing that. Like these cross-divisional, but also these cross-functional groups that allow me to kind of see in these different ways, because the way we might use tech in the lower school may be vastly different from how some of the upper school teachers would use it. And that also speaks to even 
amount of integration. In our upper schools, we don't see the amount of integration you might see in a lower school. And the amount of engagement is actually slightly less too. And I don't think that's unique to this school because again, that was the same in my previous environment. But essentially it's IT and we have our ed tech side of the house. For ed tech, I directly work with four through eight in terms of I teach grades four all the way through eighth. And our school is based on the Episcopalian. Um, it is an Episcopalian school, so we call them forms. So form C through form two. And then forms three through six, I work with those kind of like on an as-needed basis, on-demand, delivering faculty development, maybe speaking on different topics and that sort of thing. But that's kind of how we're structured. What are some of the things that you're working on? I mean, what's sort of either the trends that you're seeing or just what's top of mind right now? Yeah, so by way of what I'm working on, we're kind of like a suite of one right now. And so I figured that in order for me to kind of tackle some of these things that I want to do, like we don't have a maker program yet. And it's something I've wanted to look at and kind of weave into our existing curriculum, but also realize there's no way for me to teach all of this, design all the curriculum, teach all the curriculum, train people. So what I've started doing is I've actually started reaching out, formulating partnerships. One of the partnerships I um, have slightly formed is through an organization called the Kid Museum. It's local to D.C., and they have a huge warehouse. So they have the equipment, machinery, the skills. So I figure, hey, if I'm not able to do it here, we will do a one house or one day in service, as it were, with the kids, with the students that we need, um, I'm sorry, and their faculty to kind of bring to them those experiences because I think they need them. But again, I realize that we don't all have the capacity to facilitate them as much as we'd like. Another partnership I've engaged in in terms of how do I kind of bridge those gaps is with Win at Social, if you're familiar with Win at Social. So through our ethics class, which is an eighth grade class, we do a lot with talking about technology architecture. We talk about humane design. We do a lot from the Center for Humane Technology. And my partnership with Win at Social has allowed me to kind of be able to partner and have impact across grades four through eight, in addition to some of our classes from ninth and up. So that's kind of how I've had to approach some things, kind of find these creative, non-traditional ways to kind of make sure that our boys are getting the experiences that they need. The girls don't typically start with us until ninth grade. And so my FaceTime with the girls isn't as much as it is with the lower school boys. That's really cool. And I guess as you're sort of exploring these new areas and getting creative with your solutions, I'm assuming that as a team of one, you have a lot of ground to cover with your faculty. So what are some of the ways that you try to stretch yourself? Like, how do you serve as a team of one person? How do you serve the needs of your faculty and make sure that you're meeting them where they're at and giving them the resources that they need to be successful? Absolutely. So teachers and adults, like we spend a lot of time thinking about like pedagogy, right? And then adult learners certainly learn differently than students do. So it's usually like, Dawn, that's nice that you want to present to us about this, but I really don't need that right now. So there's this idea of relevance, immediate application into my teaching that has to kind of be in front of any type of training opportunity. So often what I'll do is one-on-one. I'll either do small departmental trainings or I'll do one-on-one conversations is what I really like to call them. Not really trainings, but conversations because I really, really, really approach my work from a relationship standpoint. I just form the relationship. And then as that relationship develops, we might start talking about different things and how, oh, this tool might actually help the boys learn this in a different way, or maybe this will actually help make your teaching and or grading more efficient. And usually when that order is kind of preserved, it kind of makes the teacher a little bit more open to hearing what it is. Occasionally I'll kind of do like an all faculty, like here's what's going on. Recently we did a talk about AI. That was more out of response of concern 
you know, Chad GPT is here. What are we going to do? And it was like, uh, Dawn, we need you to come and talk about it. Right. So sometimes it's again, it's like this on demand. I don't need you until I need you. Sometimes that's the thing. And I'm not offended by that. I just try to leverage it in ways like, okay, I know you're working in a language class. Let's look at this. Let's think about maybe you can have your boys run their essays through it. Maybe they can get some feedback on it. Maybe we can use ChatGPT to kind of cross-check your prompt against others. And so I think it's been an approach of, again, individual relationships. And then when I'm called to share, then that'll kind of happen. I want to invite my co-hosts into this question because I know Bill and Hiram, you guys have a lot of this experience in the supporting ed tech space. My question for all three of you is this. If I'm a tech leader and I come from a different industry and I have no school experience, I'm not a former teacher, I never worked with teachers, maybe I come in working with corporate or associations or whatever it is, higher ed. If I've never worked with K-12 teachers before, where do I start? Like, how do I begin to earn that trust? Dawn, you mentioned building trust. You have the trust. So if you come in with no teaching experience and you don't speak the language as a tech leader, where do you start? Our department hasn't had a lot of turnover. So finding an example that resonates just with people that we've had come in is tough. But we hear a lot from people that come into our development office, our business office, our communications office, and even sometimes in the teaching office. And they come into a school and they're really taken aback by the pace and how the pace of school differs from what they're used to working in industry, whether it's a small midsize or even a larger industry and just the pace and the process of change and the the organizational structures are often very different. And I think if there's anything when I've spoken to any number of those or any number of new ed tech people or technology people in schools, I often tell them when they come in to take a breath, to sit back and to take it all in because they may be used to a faster pace, a pace that's dictated to them by somebody who may be higher up in the organizational chart, you know, that's saying we want this change and the change just simply has to happen. And there isn't the type of collaborative conversations that happen, I think, in schools more so than in a lot of other areas. So what I generally talk to them about is just to take a moment to slow it down and to go on a listening tour, because I think People need to feel that they are going to be heard. And somebody that comes in at that ratcheted up pace that might come from industry that may be used to a more kind of top-down management style when you get into schools, particularly independent schools, you need to kind of take a moment, take a breath, slow down, and just have the conversations and then move from there because it's a delicate balance between being able to be somebody who comes in and impacts change and people expect change when someone new comes in. But in schools, I think they expect change within the context of mission, within the context of the way in which the schools function and that community that has developed over time. I concur 100%, Bill. I mean, so much of it is I love the way you described it, a listening tour. And so many folks could actually benefit from that who are new to leadership positions in schools. We have a lot of folks in independent schools that are just, they're just really bright people. There's a reason why they're there. And I think it's so important to 
get in the classrooms and actually watch what's going on, see how the curriculum unfolds, not only vertically, but also horizontally within your schools, because then you get a sense of the true ethos of the school as it relates to the the mission and the vision of the school. It's fair to say that most teachers don't want somebody coming and telling them what to do right away, especially when you haven't formed that trust or that relationship. And in listening to Dawn talking about how she's doing it at St. Albans, I have no doubt that they trust her implicitly because of the way that she's handling herself and she's being very thoughtful about how she's proceeding with her ed tech vision as it relates to the vision at St. Albans School. If I could add to that, I think one thing when I transitioned from public to independent, the world at least, I could at least in the independent side say, why are we doing this? Usually when you're in these public environments and the school has committed all this money to Apple for this iP- the iPads, for example, we're doing it because they said we needed to do it. So we just need to do it. There was not a moment to say, well, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this now? Right. And so teachers were often pushed or thrust into these positions where they felt like they didn't have a voice. Independent schools, I don't find that that's the case. I feel like there's a lot of room for autonomy. There's a lot of room for individual voice about how one solution over another may fit. But it's all been negotiated through these relationships, me being able to talk to people, sitting in classes. I'm, I go and I say, I don't have an agenda. I'm just here to learn. I'm here to learn about you, your style. I'm just taking notes, you know, making mental observations. So I think I'd agree with, with all those points. And I think the other part, and this may not be unique to all independent schools, of course, but sometimes we can become insulated as independent schools. And I found that, you know, when I was in the world of public schools, I had to leverage a lot of external, again, partnerships, right? Stepping outside of our wall saying, hey, maybe we can go to the embassy of Sweden. Maybe we can kind of create some kind of opportunity for my students to work with the embassy, right? And maybe we can have another group go work with this environmental agency, like giving them these real world opportunities, because I feel like often in in the independent world, there's a lot of thought on theory. And sometimes we don't always translate the theory to practice. And so trying to marry up these ideas is something that I'm like, okay, this makes sense theoretically, but the kids, if they're not having these opportunities to email someone who is probably in in the space that they want to talk to, like, it's just, it just feels like a practice or a useless activity to me. But yeah, I would certainly agree with both of you on how that happens. So Donna, I've got a question for you. You talked about, again, that theory and the practice. You talked about the way in which the things were set up. My role at MKA, I'm the director of technology. I have five people that report to me directly, and I work very closely with our director of EdTech. We're a three-campus school, so we have someone at each campus, and we also work very closely with our librarians. I serve on the EdTech committee, and our director of EdTech, Erica Budge, she serves on kind of like the tech committee. We also have a director of or associate head of school for curriculum and professional development who we all kind of meet with. And that's our structure there. That's the support structure for us. I sit on the administrative council at the school. You talked about a lot of the initiatives that you've got there, particularly when you're a committee of one. What does your structure look like there? Where does your support come from? Where do you go? When I used to tell my former headmaster, where do you go when you need to get the juice to get the job done? Where do you go when you need your support? And what does that look like? Absolutely. So last year, and this is interesting because the same question I've been like trying to play around with, like, how do I answer and address this question of support team? 
And last year, what I did was I started out with like, okay, I want to use this like coaching model to see if I could actually get other team members kind of a part of the work that I'm doing, seeing if, and unfortunately no one signed up. And so I said, well, people are really busy. Maybe that's why no one signed up. And so I said, but I'm not giving up that easily. We're going to think of something different. So what I did this year is I instituted a divisional specific group of liaisons, essentially. I selected or asked people to volunteer from each grade level, give me one person from each grade level. And I made an agreement. I'd keep the meeting short. We'd meet once a month. We'd kind of think about one. I started with vision and mission. That was the very first meeting. I was like, I don't want us to do anything. We're going to sit down. We're going to think about who are we as a school? We have that. Okay, now who do we want to be in the context of when we talk about ed tech? Because the perspectives and opinions around ed tech are kind of wide, right? We have some who are like, yes, let's do it. There's some who are like, nope, you know, we don't want the boys to be here. They're really distracted. Here's why they don't need to. So there's quite a bit of conversation around those two ends. Thankfully, the group I have is a very diverse group in the sense that I have both of those perspectives represented. And I did that intentionally. In addition to that, they help me now. I'm like, I need you on like a PD committee. I need you to help us kind of think about professional learning that we can engage in together as a team, but then also things that we can form for our larger faculty. A second part of that committee was like, how do we kind of do some outreach? So maybe that's a newsletter. Maybe that's just these small micro learning modules that we can kind of push out. Even if we don't think no one will read it, I think it's just a process of developing culture and we won't be able to do that unless we just do it. And so that's been the way this year, and that's been working well so far. And I think, again, starting with the question of vision and mission, I think brought me a lot of credibility with the group because they knew I wasn't here to say or pump or promote a tool or any specific agenda. I said, let's just define who we want to be. What do we think our boys should have and be when they leave school or leave St. Albans in this mindset? How does that look and how can we facilitate that? The next step now is like just thinking about our strategic plan for the school and thinking of a plan in ed tech and how that would align with the institution's goals. So that's kind of where we are now. And I think as all of you probably would agree, these things, they do take time. And so because this is the first year, I had an ambitious goal, like, oh, we're going to do this. But I am very happy with the fact that I have a group of folks. We are meeting. They can rely on and I try to keep our agenda short. I try to bribe them with gifts. (laughs) But I say all that to say that something I'm happy, I finally feel like I have a group of people to get us started. What really introduced the hiccup was the pandemic, because I did start this before the pandemic. When COVID hit, all of us can agree that all of my plans and ideas just kind of got put on the back burner, and understandably so. It took a while to get all those trains back on the track. Yeah. You mentioned that you were actually asked for help in the space of AI. Can you tell us a little bit about where you all are on your AI journey and how do you find resources to provide support to your faculty? Our CTO came and kind of mentioned, hey, this thing is coming. We need to be in front of it instead of behind it, right? Our school is fairly traditional in that we're not always first out the gate with the shiny thing. We're going to be a little slower, maybe a little bit more deliberate with it. But in this case, I think we were like, we need to at least lean into an understanding, not saying that everyone has to adopt it. And more importantly, my angle was we need to kind of think critically about how we assess. So this moment is not just a moment of saying do or don't. It's like, how will you kind of maybe revise some of your teaching approaches? How will you kind of lean in and how, like, what are you thinking? So I think we led from that approach. We gave teachers just a space to talk. We didn't force anything. We just wanted to open up engagement. But we did make the argument like, hey, this is not going away. So regardless of what we think or feel about it, this is not going away. How do we respond to it? What should our response be? So that's kind of 
how we led. And in terms of like resources, of course, I'm always combing um, resources online. I'm always on LinkedIn looking at resources there. A lot of those are business specific, but some of them do have application and utility for education, not all of them. But I think the biggest trend has been like around like prompt engineering and teaching the art of writing a question, the art of posing a question to students and helping them to support or helping support just their skill in being able to frame a question. The other things like using AI to kind of help teacher workflow, those haven't, I shouldn't say sold as well here. I think teachers here are really looking for like the deep meaning and not that those tools for efficiency aren't useful, but I think they really are looking for like the deeper meanings behind it and how it's going to impact their practice, especially with our English and history departments. So Don, I actually had an opportunity to present with your CTO on AI, and it sounds like we're running very similar paths as well. We're also a traditional school. It's fascinating how you and I are running parallel careers, essentially. You know, I was a biology major as well and taught in middle school science and then eventually got into the ed tech field. I actually had our advancement office send me a picture because this year's 25-year group of alums, they had a photo of me using an LCD gray panel on an overhead projector back in the day. So, (laughs) Hiram, she cringed. I know she did. We heard it. It's on the podcast. That was a verbal cringe. I know. And the fascinating thing is that now we're talking about AI and it just shows you how far we have come in the journey that all of us have gone through in this ed tech space. And it really is nothing short of remarkable. Yeah. And I think it begs the question, and I know one of the things I've been thinking about 20 years into ed tech, and if we just kind of look at, I'm thinking about when I started my career, when I started using tools, and us now having at least a 20-year span of data, or maybe not, but just a collection of points where we can say, here's how these tools actually did or did not help learning. And that's the thing that I've been questioning, like, Do we have those data points? How could I, with confidence, argue that our use of this tool, let's use the iPad, for example, right? I do have like anecdotal feedback, but how can I, with confidence, say that our use of this tool in this way actually transform and help the students kind of make these academic gains? I'm not saying we are not able to do that. I just don't think now as a forethought, like that I was thoughtful enough to find this, I guess, way to track that, right? I'm thinking the same too, like once artificial intelligence will continue, like how do we measure its impact on learning? How do you quantify that? Like, should it be quantified? Is this, so those are questions that I have now. And for my critical teachers who will say, well, what can we say? What has it gained us, right? The argument I get in return is our kids are distracted. They can't attend to tasks for long periods of time. One thing I notice, kids, they can use tech for the social purposes, but when it comes to some of the academic purposes, like being able to go out and find resources, knowing how to search. Like, yes, we're spending time in class teaching these skills, but when it comes for them to like call on these skills to actually use them for purpose, I feel like there's some stumbling. So I still feel like there's some work to be done as it pertains to how tech is being used for academic purposes. It just becomes sometimes challenging to argue to teachers why one would select one thing over another or even use it all together. So I don't know how you guys have experienced that or not, but I'm definitely raising those questions to myself. Like, was this a good idea? Why or why not? And what do we do in the next few years? So one of the questions I have that dovetails on that quite nicely is, how do you pick the tool? Does it work? Is it something that you should be using? One of the things that's come up for us at our school now, really in a post-COVID world when there was this explosion of tools, 
was how do you go about the process of vetting and looking at tools to make the decision about whether the tool is appropriate? And I'll say, how is it appropriate from a teaching and learning standpoint? How is it appropriate from a developmental perspective? But how is it appropriate from a security perspective? Meaning, like, what are they doing with the data? How are they sharing the data? Are they advertising? All of those things. Because particularly, and I feel for you as a person of one, because we're dealing with this with a committee of people that are looking at it across our different, you know, our middle school ed tech coordinator or integrationist will get something. I'll look at it. The director of ed tech will look at it. The three of us will look at it. And that takes time. How are you doing that? How are you making those decisions as a committee of one? When the pandemic, when everything kind of stopped and pivoted, we knew that teachers were going to need a different set of tools to use while we were in remote. And so my colleague and I, our CTO and I sat down and we kind of developed a framework for vetting tools, right? It was a software evaluation, almost like a matrix-like rubric that we use to kind of ask the questions about privacy and security. So our CTO really looked at those sides, how data is protected, are there ads? I looked at it from what is the pedagogical benefit from using this tool over another? Do we already have a tool in use that can meet the same need? Like, why are we buying something else that we already have? Two, I also have a responsibility to steward the school's finances. And so as I look through my budget, I'm like, okay, I think we we don't need this. This may not be the best tool for this purpose from a holistic perspective. I also engage in questions like, have you even talked to your department head? Because often what I find that, you know, those conversations are not always happening, even amongst those smaller pods. So I try to push back to just say, hey, let's just have a broader conversation about why this tool, why now? We kind of approach it from that perspective. And then the CTO and I get together and we say, hey, do we both agree that this is a good idea? And then we'll go forward with that. But yeah, we do use that framework. And um, right now it's just he and myself. And I need to pause and celebrate that because, Don, I mean, for let's say on the less resourced side of the spectrum, you may be a small school or you may be a, a lone ed tech integrationist at your school. That's huge. That is huge that even just those simple questions, that filter that you and your CTO established, that is really impressive because there are very, very well-resourced schools in our space that do not have that. The horses have left the barn. They have no idea what tools are being used. They do not know what kind of privacy exposure they have by accepting these tools. If we could see Bill and Hiram in person right now, I know they'd be celebrating that. So I think it's important to pause and recognize that even that framework that you guys designed is really important. And you're doing a lot to not only protect your boys, your students, but also to make sure that you're being thoughtful about this. Here, here. I'm also a parent. My kids do attend public school and they sent home Chromebooks. And I said, oh, Lord. <laughs> Even though I'm a tech person, I said, oh, how are we going to do this? Right. And so, you know, you try to be the nice person and you don't want to go and say, have you done this before you, you know, but there were some thoughtful conversations about like, there should be some guardrails. My child is only in the fifth grade and like just those questions. And so I think my commitment to, I want my kids to be protected. So I kind of, when I'm working with my students and for and serving their families, I'm thinking, how do we, we have a responsibility to respect the kids that we educate here. And so I I think that is a large part of the conviction. And of course, I mean, being resourceful, I have to make sure that I'm thoughtfully using what we have and not being wasteful. So yeah, but thank you for that. 
That's incredible. So earlier I asked you guys how tech leaders with no teaching experience, like where they could start. Now, if I could, I'd like to pose the same question reversed. If non-techie teachers are interested in dipping their toe into this water, where can they start? Or how do you help non-techie teachers stretch their boundaries? We all have teachers who are a little bit like, this is how I've done it. This is where I'm successful. Please leave me alone in my sandbox. But if they're willing to stretch the boundaries, how do you go about that? I tell you, we seem to be having a common theme over many of these podcasts, which is about the relationships. And that is to develop that relationship, develop that trust. If you're going to deploy any ed tech or any tech resources to somebody who is non-technical, start with the personal. And how can they leverage technology in their personal lives first? Sometimes it's as simple as, you know, can I help you create a vacation list with your family members? Is there a way for me to help you understand how to set up labels for Christmas cards? What are some of the things that I can do to help you in your personal life so you can see how these tools can actually benefit you and your students to enhance your curriculum? One thing, kind of taken from the medical field, I guess, as it were, when I was still fully in the classroom, we used to do what were called learning walks. And learning walks are like rounds. I would literally take a group of teachers around to a teacher who was excellent at practice and adopting tech. We would just observe. The teacher also wanted to get feedback from our time there, but I would try to show these examples of in-practice adoption so that teachers could say, oh, that's what's possible. I wonder how I could use this to kind of also position myself in a way where I'm not the expert. I want them to know that this is a an equal relationship. And when they see their colleagues presenting in that way, it's like, it just kind of helps to um, kind of flatten that some. So just exchanging, I think, as Hiram already said, relationships, but them also being able to see it in practice. And then I think from there, and then I'm going to back to this, I think it's really important. Like when I first started this journey, we spent so much time learning about the SAMRA model. And then I started learning about the TPAC models, right? And so I think starting to have and introduce some of those pieces of language to teachers to say, yes, there's all these tools out here, but do you even understand why we should use a tool? Do you understand what the purpose and what their purpose might be? So I think also kind of trying to infuse that, hey, yes, these tools are out there, but let's think about the teaching and the pedagogy behind it to understand why we're using it. I love that. It sounds, Dawn, like you have a lot of big ideas, but you also recognize that there's a discipline that comes with moving at a pace that's appropriate for your community. If you had a magic wand and I allowed you to flick it a couple of times, what do you think you would do? Like if resources were not an issue, time was not an issue, you probably have a lot more creative thoughts in your head than you have time to execute. So what would you wish for in terms of your current environment? I think one of the things, mostly all teachers, we all have these complaints about time. Time is one of those resources that we just never have time. I've been thinking a lot about our schedule. Our schedule is a rotating seven-day schedule, and it is interesting. So to say that, I wish we had time where I can have like a genius hour with my kids, where I can have one time that's just unstructured, unscripted, where they can kind of explore these interests that they have. They can include tech or not. But I think creating a space for Kids to be creative in a non, you know, judgmental way, I think is important. Give them space to present their interest and just kind of giving um, space to more design thinking principles in what we do. That's something I'd love to be able to have, like just have a one class devoted to just making and creating. 
I think the one thing I love there is that idea that it's without judgment. It's a place where you can come in and you can try something. And if you it succeeds, great. And if it doesn't, that's fine. And I think faculty often feel like they need to be perfect at their craft. And it's when they feel like that perfection is not there, that's when they kind of recoil and they feel like they're not willing to take those risks. So I think setting up those opportunities where they can come in and they can either, as you're saying, go on those walks and see what this would look like, or be able to come in and try something in a space that is a little less scary for them, I think is great. I love that. And Don, I would say, if you find the urge to come on down to Richmond, I mean, this is a chance. We have a, a similar program that you've described, and I know you're on your journey of creating some sort of STEM or maker type of space. We have a build program. We're also an all-boys school, very similar to St. Albans. Ours is not called STEM or STEAM or maker. It's actually called build, and it's boys using innovation to learn and design. It's a fabulous space. All our nines take it, but it's also a program that is across the lower, middle, and upper schools. So consider yourself having an open invitation. Thank you. I mean, Hiram, if you're going to invite Dawn, I think you just invited the whole podcast. Absolutely. Like you have to bring enough for the whole class. So I think we're planning a Talking Technology with Atlas field trip. I love it. Absolutely. I mean, Christina, you're supposed to come to Richmond at some point and pay me a visit. I will. You know I will. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So Dawn, are you, you know, as you consume information, are you a podcast listener by nature? I am not. And I should be. And it's funny because I was talking with a friend. I was like, oh, my God, I should probably start doing this. Right. I do listen to a lot of LinkedIn courses. I listen to a lot of them. I'm just on my you know, way to work. I'll just listen to it. And a lot of them are like in the tech and business. Right. Hearing about how they're using AI. Um, a lot of my time has been spent learning and listening to content about AI from different voices. But I think I need to start listening to more podcasts. <laughs> That's awesome, though. I mean, Whatever the way you consume it, audiobook, podcasts, traditional books, newspapers, online articles, whatever it is, just keeping an eye on what's happening outside of the realm of independent schools can be useful. So as we start to think about wrapping up, I have just a couple more questions for you. And one is in the space of leadership. And so we've talked a lot about building trust and having these relationships with folks around your school community. But something that whether you were intending to be a medical doctor or intending to teach biology or intending to be director of educational technology, we never really come into these roles with a lot of leadership skills and background. So how have you built your standing among your peers in terms of just making sure that you're bringing kind of a well-rounded skill set to the game. Yeah, you know what? And as I was kind of thinking about just some of the voices I listen to, in addition to it be a podcast or LinkedIn or not, I've started to subscribe to like the University of Rhode Island. They have a media club that I attend their meetings every month. And I think that has given way to, oh, now there's this other resource and I'll attend it, learn more. And I've tried to kind of just set myself apart by one, making sure I know what's out in the field, because I think how I'm kind of pointed to it earlier being a department of one, it's hard to exchange ideas in-house. So a lot of what I'm getting is, I mean, often I'm talking to my colleague at our sister school, our NCS or National Cathedral School, about ideas, things that they're doing, ways that we can kind of combine our efforts together so that both the boys and girls are having the same experiences. But it's usually through me kind of doing my own research, reaching out a few years. I think just before the pandemic, I finalized my ISTE certification. And I think things like that have helped me to kind of not only stay abreast, but also know what are the best practices in my field. 
how do I um, make sure that teachers understand that not only do students have standards, there are standards for teachers as well. And so I think those sorts of experiences have certainly helped me in terms of just leadership. And again, just listening to voices in leadership that are not only in education, but listening to leadership across different domains, I think helps too. That's really great. So I started this podcast by asking Hiram and Bill whether their family and friends know what they do for a living. So what is it that your family and friends think you do all day? It's so funny. My kids are funny. They know I teach because, again, I was a teacher before I transitioned into this role, but they think I just solve problems all day. They're like, um, mommy just helps people with their computers is kind of how they say it, right? And so when I get home, I'm also the default tech person at home too. Like, mom, this isn't working. And I'm like, ah, never ends. It never ends. During the summers, we have this amazing like summer camp here on our campus. And I bring my kids on campus. They get to see the different pockets across St. Albans. So they kind of have a sense of what I do and the people I talk to and um, make it a kind of like a family thing. So that's how they see me. <laughs> you know, I don't think that ever ends, Dawn. We as co-hosts on this podcast have older children and I'm still getting the messages, you know, at 10 p.m. Why is the Wi-Fi down? What can you do about the Wi-Fi? Can someone please reset the Wi-Fi? I'm pretty sure that that happens well into adulthood. That's not good for me. <laughs> it's you know everything about everything because you're the tech person. That's right. And it doesn't work that way. And you can't explain that to them. Mom, I can't help you because I can't see what it is that you're doing right now. I just don't know. You know, it doesn't work that way. Oh, my God. And it's not just my kids, my mom, too. <laughs> She'll call me. Um, Something's happening to the phone. I'm like, okay, what's happening to the phone? Please describe. <laughs> can you come over? Yeah, can you come over? I'm like, now? Yes. I'm like, okay, I guess so. <laughs> but that has helped me, though, have empathy for even some of my colleagues who I realize might be in that same age demographic. It does give me an empathy when I'm working with them. And I think that has given me a lot of, in terms of credibility, that has helped a whole lot, too. Well, this conversation has helped me a whole lot because I love your focus. I love your passion. It's so easy to just get this energy from you that you really are committed to what you do and that you really do care about the work that you do. So that's incredible. Your school is very lucky to have you. And we've been very lucky to have you on this podcast. So I think that in conclusion, just make our people Google stuff, right? And just turn things on and off. Is that the moral of the story today? I think so. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you, Dawn, for your time. It's been such a pleasure to have you here. Gentlemen, thank you, as always, for joining me on this journey. That concludes another episode of Talking Technology with Atlas. We can't wait to hear and see you next time. This has been Talking Technology with Atlas, produced by the Association of Technology Leaders and in Independent Schools. For more information about Atlas and Atlas membership, please visit theatlas.org. If you enjoyed this discussion, please subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast with your colleagues in the independent school community. Thank you for listening. This episode has been brought to you by Veracross and Toddle. Atlas thanks our vendor partners for their support.